At Wildwood Community Church, we are for following Jesus together to the glory of God. We're for the church, for the community, for the nations, and for the next generation. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. Today we're going to be launching a new sermon series. And uh, this series is called Reveal. And it's anchored in Matthew chapters 16 and 17. And in those two chapters, what we see is as Jesus heads towards the cross, he actually pulls the curtain back a little further to let his disciples know who he really is. He talks freely of what he's going to do on the cross. He is transfigured in front of them. Um, He has a very direct conversation as to his identity and a number of other things as Jesus walks towards the cross. And, And just as it was important for the followers in the first century to come to know who Jesus really is, so it is important for you and I to come to know who Jesus really is as well. And so this morning, we're going to be kicking off that series by looking at Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 20, in a conversation that Jesus has with his disciples up in Caesarea Philippi. But before we do that, I want to just have a little bit of reflection for us on the number of questions that we get asked or questions that we ask. Uh, We live in a world that is full of questions. And sometimes we get asked so many questions that we just begin to tune them out. I think about uh, just my experience right now with an election cycle going on. Somehow my cell phone landed on some kind of a a spam uh, situation where they're seeking questions and and questionnaires about different political candidates. And I get these questions, I just begin to tune them out. Maybe you do the same. Or maybe you've grown weary of the questions that you get asked because what starts as a small question is, ends up being something massive that you don't have time for. I mean, have you ever been asked the question, do you have a second? Be wary when that question comes because, yes, I do have a second, but I don't have time to go to Dallas and move your piano with you, okay? So that just when you think about the, the questions that we get asked, sometimes we're weary of them. Sometimes we get asked so many, we begin to tune them out. But there are questions that all of us ask that are of great consequence to our lives. Questions like, where are we going to go to school? What are we going to major in? What vocation are we going to pursue? Are we going to get married? Are we not going to get married? Who are we going to marry? Are we going to get married again? Where are we going to live? Who are my friends going to be? There are a number of significant questions that we get asked. And as we gather today and we begin to think about it, we could brainstorm a list of consequential questions that we have been asked and had to answer. But friends, today in Matthew chapter 16, we're going to see not just another question, but the most important question that we can be asked. And it's important not just because it's the subject of our sermon today, it's important because of who is asking it. See, in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus asks a question. And when Jesus, the Son of God, asks a question, we need to sit up at attention. And so Jesus asks a question in Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 20, that I believe is the most important question that we will ever be asked. It's more consequential than where we'll live or even who we'll marry or what vocation we will pursue because those things have temporal Temporary time frames. But who Jesus is, because he is an eternal God, has eternal consequences. So how will we answer the question of the identity of Jesus Christ? 
We see that come to us in Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 20. So if you've got a Bible, open up to Matthew 16. We're going to look at these seven verses together today. Matthew 16, beginning in verse 13, says this. It says, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And so Jesus said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Now, in these verses today, friends, we're going to see three things of great consequence for you and me. The first thing we're going to see is this, the most important question ever. It's asked right here in these verses. What is the most important question ever? The most important question ever is, who is Jesus? And Jesus takes the opportunity as he's on a field trip with his disciples up to the city of Caesarea Philippi, and he asks them the question, who do people say that I am? Now, Jesus asked that not just because he wanted to ask a survey of them based on the responses that they had heard, but he was conducting some kind of Socratic method here, asking them questions that ultimately were going to get more pointed as he revealed to them a great truth. And so Jesus says, who do people say that I am? And the disciples look around to each other, and they're like, well, what answers have we been hearing? I mean, we've we've been out at the feeding of the 5,000, the feeding of the 4,000. We've seen all these miracles that Jesus has done. What is it that people are saying? And they begin to issue a list. Now, what's fascinating to me is that all of the people that are mentioned here by the disciples have something in common. Do you know what it is? Let's, Let's look at it. They said, John the Baptist, or Elijah, or Jeremiah, or one of the other prophets. Now, what do all of those people have in common? They were all dead at this time. In other words, as they listened to the responses of people, people were saying there is something supernatural going on around Jesus. Now, none of them said that he was the Messiah, But all of them were supernaturally curious about Jesus because he reminded them of people that had a connection with God in the past. They thought that maybe he was John the Baptist. This was what Herod thought. Herod, who killed John the Baptist, heard of what Jesus was doing and said, you know, that sounds like the kind of preaching that John was doing, and I killed John. Maybe John has come back to life in Jesus's John reincarnate. Others thought maybe he was Elijah. Elijah, of course, in the Old Testament was prophesied to to come back. One was going to come in the spirit and the power of Elijah before Messiah would come. And some people watched Jesus' ministry and they thought maybe Jesus was the forerunner. Of course, who was the forerunner? It was John the Baptist, but they thought that maybe Jesus was Elijah come back. 
Or maybe others thought he was Jeremiah. Now, this one maybe isn't quite so clear, but Jeremiah was known as the weeping prophet as he would prophesy over Israel uh, woes about the leadership at, of Israel at the time of Jeremiah was, was really in some trouble. And these, this prophecy that came forth at that time, uh, Jeremiah was known as the weeping prophet. And so as Jesus spoke against the leaders of Israel in his day, that maybe he sounded a little like Jeremiah. But I think it's fascinating that though they had some thought that Jesus was connected to something supernatural, none of them correctly identified him as the Messiah. Now, I think that's significant for for you and I because we live in a world where people have various views about who Jesus is. If I were to task you to go onto your street or onto your dorm floor or into your workplace or even around your family and ask the question, who is Jesus, you would get a number of different responses, wouldn't you? In those responses, a common thread that would run through many of them is that there was something you know, kind of supernatural about Jesus. He started a religion. He was a, an important historical figure who had a connection to God. He was very devout or moral. He was a good religious teacher. There would be something about him that pointed in a supernatural direction, but in the world in which we live, it's not common for people to correctly identify Jesus as the Son of God. There are many different views and opinions out there about who Jesus really is. But Jesus doesn't just allow the question to sit in terms of their assumptions about what everybody else was saying, but Jesus takes it one step further and he says, but how about you? Disciples, who do you say that I am? They couldn't avoid it at this point. They couldn't just say what their friends said or what the masses said. They had to get particular. They had to answer that question themselves. And friends, the same thing is true of us today. Every one of us has to answer the question, who is Jesus? Because he is eternal. When we leave this planet, we will stand face to face before him. See, you can dodge the question when I ask it. I mean, you can begin to pull out your phone and and look around and find out what time the the Cowboys play or don't play today or whatever it is that you're interested in the rest of the day. You can avoid my question, but you can't avoid the fact that one day we will stand before the eternal Son of God and he will ask, who do you say that I am? Jesus asks the question, who do you say that I am? It's the most important question ever. Well, if that's the most important question ever, then what happens next reveals to us the most important answer ever. The most important answer ever is what Peter says. It says Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's the most important answer that, that, that ever comes about. Now, I want to break down what Peter actually said in his answer here. The first thing that he says is he says that you are the Christ. Now, contrary to maybe what you've heard before, Christ was not Jesus' last name. Christ was, was a title of incredibly significant proportions because it pointed to Jesus as the Messiah, the one that was promised in the Old Testament to come and take away the sins of those who follow him the one who would establish a kingdom on the earth and rule in that kingdom forever and ever and ever. Peter looks at Jesus and he says, Jesus, you are the Christ. You are the one that was promised in the Old Testament. You're the one that Isaiah spoke about. 
And here you are among us. It's a remarkable thing that Peter says. An expectation of forgiveness and hope and eternal life in the kingdom. All referenced right there in Christ. But he doesn't just say you are the Christ. He says you are also the son of the living God. Now as remarkable as it was that he called him the Christ, I think it's even more remarkable that he called him the son of the living God. Peter was saying, Jesus, you're the Messiah, but guess what? You're also God in the flesh. We're we're looking at God as we look at you. That's what Peter says. And the context helps drive this home even more because where this conversation takes place is in a city. If you've got your Bible, just open, scan back up to verse 13. Where is this conversation happening? It's happening in a town called Caesarea Philippi. Now, what's the significance of this conversation happening in Caesarea Philippi? Caesarea Philippi was in the geographical boundaries of Israel, but it was on the far northern edges of the country, and it was a truly pagan city. As a matter of fact, this city was was most known for the grotto of altars to false gods that existed right above uh, the city, city square. There was an altar to the the Greek god Pan. There also was an altar and a temple to Augustus Caesar, who they also believed was a god. Remember, Augustus Caesar was the Caesar who was ruling over the Roman Empire at the time that Jesus was born. And then there were altars to a number of other false gods. And so as Jesus is interacting with his disciples and he asks him, who do you say that I am? He is standing in front of a backdrop of altars to many different gods, lowercase g, S on the end. Gods, who I might add, were dead. They had no life in them. Peter's response says, you're not the son of one of those gods. You're not connected to just something randomly mythical or supernatural. But he says, you are are the living God, singular, the, capital G. Peter saw Jesus as God himself. Now, when Peter makes this declaration, Jesus immediately responds and says, hey, blessing comes on the backside of that answer. When you come to know Jesus for who he really is, blessing follows. That was true for Peter, and it's also true for us. Think of the the blessings that come when we come to know Jesus as the Son of God. Think about what Romans chapter 10, verse 9 and 10 says. It says, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. In other words, salvation comes when you believe. That's the blessing that Jesus is talking about. And not only that, but we see in 1 John chapter 5, verses 10 to 12, whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. The salvation that is offered in Jesus, the blessing that comes is not temporary. It's eternal because God is eternal and Jesus will defend us and vouch for us and give us his righteousness forever and ever. 
That's the blessing that follows belief in Christ. When you stand before Jesus and he asks us to identify who he is, if we do not know him as the living God, we will be in our sins and we'll be separated from God forever. But if we know him, blessing follows. Now this blessing, Jesus then says, is from a supernatural origin. Now I think it's funny Jesus says next, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Now we see that and we're like, wait a minute, I thought that this was Peter who was talking. Who's this Simon Barjona character? Well, Simon Barjona, this is, this is how that breaks down. Simon was Peter's birth name. That's what was his name that he was given at birth. Barjona means son of Jonah. Simon, son of Jonah, this message that you have just embraced and professed is not a message that came to you through flesh and blood, but it was revealed to you by your Father who is in heaven. What was Jesus saying? Because it wasn't an accident that Peter had come to understand this truth. God had revealed this truth to him, and Peter had embraced that revelation in faith. See, Peter did not come to understand this because he was the son of Jonah. Jesus didn't say, hey, Peter, because you grew up in a good home, that took you to synagogue, because you're the son of Jonah, you come to know that this is true. He says, no, this that you have come to know, this great truth of the existence of who I am, has come to you because your heavenly Father wanted you to know it. And through a, a series of events has revealed that truth to you that you now declare back to me. It came not through natural, but through supernatural means. But here's what's interesting. This supernatural thing that happened in this declaration that he makes was revealed to Peter in very natural ways. Now, here's what I mean by that. It says that the Father revealed it to him. Does this mean that Peter went to bed one night, and while he was asleep, God downloaded a program in his head that he then woke up and he knew all, of, all that was, was here? No, that's not the way that it happened. It happened over a number of years as Peter spent time with Jesus and he saw with his eyes and he heard with his ears who Jesus was. And he became convinced through that experience that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God. It was supernatural and that God is the one that that set that up. It was God who, who warmed his heart to that truth and made sense of it in his mind. But that supernatural revelation happened in very natural ways. Now, here is where I think this needs to interface with with us a little bit. Do you realize that if we have come into a relationship with God by understanding that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, do you realize that that is not because we are the son of, insert the name of your parents? It's not because you grew grew up in a Christian home. It's not because of whatever flesh and blood things you might lean back on. It's because Your heavenly father pulled back the curtain and revealed this truth to you. He pursued you in that way. Now, here's how that plays out, though. Though it happened because of a supernatural initiation by God, it plays out in very natural ways, doesn't it? The things that we have seen with our eyes, the things that we have heard with our ears. I mean, in my life, my coming into a relationship with Jesus was not because I grew up the son of Dick Robinson, It's because my heavenly father pursued me. But how did he pursue me? 
He pursued me in natural ways, through a nativity set on the top of our television growing up. He pursued me through bad crafts that I made inside of vacation Bible school. He, he pursued me on a basketball court and a tennis court and a golf course by, with a youth pastor who pursued me and shared Christ with me. He pursued me through a little book called The Four Spiritual Laws that my sister went off on a mission trip in college and came back and opened it up and shared it with me. Friends, it's through very natural ways that the supernatural revelation of God typically comes to us. Peter became convinced because the Father made it clear. If you've come into a relationship with Christ, know that the same thing happened in your life. Insert the stories of the natural things, but the supernatural revelation of God. And here's the thing, and this is so exciting. If you're here today and you have never come to know Jesus as your Savior, but as I'm talking, you want to, guess what? That's not me. If you've just begun considering the claims of Christ because of a podcast you're listening to or a friend that has given you something to read at work or a conversation you've had with your neighbor, it is not because that person is so persuasive or you are especially gullible. It is because there is an eternal God who loves you and is pursuing you. And he is pulling back the curtain and inviting you to embrace him in faith. Friends, this is the story that we're living out. The most important question that is ever asked is who is Jesus? The most important answer that you can give is understanding that he is the Christ, the son of the living God. But there's a third thing that we need to see inside of this passage, and that is if Jesus is the most important answer, the most important answer issues a surprising promise in this conversation, and that is the promise of the church. After this brief interaction with, with Peter, he continues talking and says this to him. He says, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, this is a mouthful, and we need to break this down about what is really going on. What is Jesus actually saying here? Well, the first thing that I want to draw our attention to is that Jesus says that he's going to be building something. He's going to be building something. In other words, he's getting ready to go to the cross. He's getting ready to give his life as a sacrifice and be placed inside of a tomb. But his ministry wasn't over because he would resurrect three days later and he would ascend to heaven where he is ruling now. And guess what he's doing? He is building something. What began as something that was very few in number, just a handful of disciples as Jesus issued this initial promise, would grow into millions of people. Why? Because Jesus was building something. Jesus says, I am building. Now, what was he going to be building through his resurrected life? He says he's going to be building his church. Now, here's the thing. What would the disciples have expected him to say? They would have expected him to say, I'm going to build my kingdom. That's what they thought. They thought he's going to set up a throne in Jerusalem, and he's going to to rule from that throne forever and ever and ever. Um, That is still a promise that is yet to be fulfilled. It's, It's still coming. But Jesus here says that there is something else he's going to be doing in the meantime until he comes again. 
He's going to be building his church. He, he's prophesying something here that we are super familiar with because we live in 2018, but was absolutely radical in the first century. Jesus was saying, I'm going to be calling to myself people from every tribe, tongue, and nation and making them a part of a called out group of people who are living right now only with me forever. Not the nation of Israel, something different. He was talking about the thing he was building was a connected body that includes you and me. Jesus says, I will build my church. And then he makes this incredible statement about it. He says, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. What he was saying there, he said, there's nothing that can thwart or stop the thing that I'm building, which is my church. Gates was a a, a figure inside of the first century that talked about a place of authority. Think back to the, the book of Ruth where the transactions are made at the city gates the place of authority. Uh, Literally, it's not hell, but Hades here, the place of the dead. What Jesus says is the authority of death cannot stop what I'm building. In other words, the world will kill me, but it won't stop what I'm building. Three days later, I'll rise again. The 12 apostles, the world will kill them, but it won't stop what I'm building. And generations of martyrs in the church will rise up and will profess the truth of Christ, and they will be killed off or by natural means or as martyrs in the faith, and it won't stop. Why? Because a living God is building his living church. The gates of hell will not prevail. Now, having said all of that, I want to back up and look at kind of a controversial or a confusing section of this verse. And that is what Jesus said first. He says to Peter, he says, Peter, on this rock, I will build my church. Now, what in the world was Jesus talking about when he said, on this rock, he'll build his church? Well, I think there's at least three options of what he was talking about in that situation that all are biblically defensible, all are theologically allowable. Okay, The first possibility is that Jesus was talking about himself. In other words, if we were to think about this in terms of some, some action, um, Jesus, we, we had had a video of this and it wasn't just on paper. You know, hey, Peter, your name sounds like a rock. Um, Peter, but on, on this rock, you know, Jesus kind of points back to himself. On this rock, I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Biblically, this idea is echoed in other places where Jesus talks of himself, even in Matthew 21, verse 42, as being the cornerstone of the work of God, cornerstone of our salvation. It's possible that Jesus was talking about himself. It's also possible that Jesus was talking about Peter's confession. In other words, Peter, that's awesome what you said, blessed are you, and upon you know, it's not like, you know, in a cartoon, there'd be a little bubble that would come out of somebody's mouth and the words would be there. It's like Jesus pointed to that little bubble in the words and said, hey, on that thing that you just said, on that belief, on that testimony, on that confession, on that, I'm going to build my church. And again, this is consistent with other things that we see in Scripture. When the Great Commission is given to go into all the world, it is to invite people to embrace by faith the work of what God is doing. And so there's this, this idea of a, the confession of faith is 
is what connects us to the church. A third possibility is to say that it was Peter himself. Jesus was saying, hey, Peter, blessed are you, and on, on you I'm going to be building my church. Again, this idea is anchored in a couple of places in Scripture. We think about it in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 through 22. So then you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Talking here to the church in Ephesus. Built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. You know, the the idea is that in the foundation time of the church, Jesus is the cornerstone, but the apostles and the prophets chronologically helped form a foundation. And everyone who has trusted Christ since that first century rests upon these who came to him first. Uh, Revelation chapter 21 verse 14 talks about the, the heavenly city and the wall of the city had 12 foundations and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb, one of those names, of course, being Peter. So it's possible that this rock that Jesus builds the church on is a testimony of the apostles, including Peter. Now, which one is it? Which one is it? If you had asked me at different phases of my life, I would have answered this question differently. And I'm going to answer to the best of my understanding right now while holding it with an open hand. I think he's talking about Peter. I think because of the way that it says, the most common understanding of the way it's written would be for Jesus to say, you know, Peter, on you this church is, is going to be built. And I think what Jesus was saying was, you are the first of many who will come after you who will profess faith in me. Jesus was the cornerstone, Peter a part of the foundation, and all of us who have trusted Christ since then are added to that building that Jesus is building. I think that that is my best understanding of the passage. And I think it gains strength when we think about uh, the fact that, that it doesn't have to mean, if we embrace that view, that Peter became the Pope. Because I think that's the, the number one objection to this idea for us as Protestants is to think, well, does this mean that Peter somehow was the extra special guy that had the direct line to God and, and he speaks infallible things and all of these kinds of this, this power consolidates in one person? not named Jesus. I, I don't think that is necessary for a variety of reasons. You know, Peter sees all believers as stones inside of this, and he doesn't differentiate their significance in First Peter chapter 2. Uh, the other apostles are also talked about as having significant roles in leadership in the church prophesied by Jesus in Matthew chapter 18. Functionally, Peter did not even make all of the decisions. At the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15, Peter is just another voice, but it was James, the brother of Jesus, who actually issued forth the declaration about the church going and growing among the Gentiles. Also, Peter made some mistakes. Galatians chapter 2, it's not like he lived a perfect life or he was somehow better. It was a process of his growth as well. And, and I think even most profound among these is that Peter never once, you don't see anywhere in the book of Acts, you don't see anywhere inside of his letters or especially in Mark's gospel, which was influenced largely by Peter's testimony, you never see Peter playing the I'm better than you card. 
For these reasons, we can see Peter as a part of the apostles, the foundation of the church that Jesus is building, but not see him as a pope. Now, how does that jive with what Jesus says in verse 19? In verse 19, he says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now, this is a very difficult phrase to understand as well. Let's just admit it up front. This is a challenging verse for us to understand, but I don't think it's impossible. And I think that the way that we help make sense of it is by understanding how the original audience would have understood this to be written. Things being bound or things being loosed were, was common language among rabbis, thinking about things that were permitted or forbidden. Okay, So sub out, bound and loosed with permitted or forbidden. Okay, you get there, maybe make this a little easier to understand. And then we need to look at what the original grammar, when Jesus said this, actually said. What, what the original grammar points to is, is this kind of a, of a translation. I will give to you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you forbid on earth shall have been forbidden in heaven. That's how the grammar actually is written. And whatever you permit on earth shall have been permitted in heaven. Do you see the difference? The idea is not that the church is making up the will of God. The idea is that the church becomes the conduit of revealing the way that God wants it to be. And I think specifically, this is talking about the giving of the New Testament. As Peter and the apostles write for us, revealing to us what God has already decreed to be true in heaven passing it on to us. But I think it even has another layer that's important for us to see. And that is this idea with the keys. See, keys were something that you would use to open a door, right? Their day, our day, the same. But think about what happens in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. In Acts 1, 8, Jesus says to his disciples, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. What's fascinating is Jesus gives a global scope for his great commission here. And every time the gospel goes to an area in the book of Acts, this Holy Spirit follows. But you know who's always there when the Holy Spirit shows up? Peter. Look at this. In Jerusalem in Acts 2, the Spirit comes among the Jews. In Acts chapter 8, After the Samaritans believe, Peter shows up, and then the Spirit comes. In Acts chapter 10, when Peter shows up at Cornelius' house, the Spirit of God shows up in Cornelius' house. Peter has got the keys historically, and in three different instances, opens the door of the Spirit of God to come to those places, not because Peter was declaring something to be true, but because Peter was revealing what God had already promised back in Acts 1-8. This is a picture of the role of what Peter was doing and what the church has the privilege of offering. Now, friends, I want to just make three kind of applications here as we wrap up. The first application I want us to see is this. Our faith is in Jesus, but it rests on the testimony of the eyewitnesses. Now, here's the thing. Jesus is the cornerstone. We have no salvation apart from him. 
But how do we come to know that Jesus is who he says he is? How is it that God gets that message to us? Well, a good chunk of how that happened is by the apostles and the prophets, Peter included, recording for us in the New Testament eyewitness accounts of who Jesus is, what he had done, so that you and I, 2,000 years later, might be able to embrace it in faith. We have a faith in Christ that is not just a myth, but it anchors back even to eyewitness accounts of his work upon the earth. Second thing that I think is critical for us to see here is that the church is being built and it cannot fail. Amen? You know, we live in a time and a day and age where people bemoan the death of the church. And really, when we say that, what we, what we ought to mean is the death of the church, lowercase c. In other words, there, there can be congregations that once were there that no longer are there because of fidelity to their faith. But guess what? The church that Jesus is building is still going. There may be empty buildings in Europe, there may be empty buildings in America or other places around the world. But the church that Jesus is building, nothing can stop. Be encouraged with that truth. And the third thing I think we need to see is this. We're anchored to God's truth. We're anchored to it. Warren Wearsby says this about the whole binding and loosing, permitting and forbidding. He says, the church does not get man's will done in heaven. It obeys God's will on the earth. And I think that that is just a a, a powerful reminder to us. And we think about how we connect inside of this community of believers. God is not asking us to invent things. He's asking us to love others and follow him. So I want to end by asking the same question that we began with. The most important question you'll ever be asked, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? For some of us, we can declare with gusto again, he's the Christ, the son of the living God. But for others, maybe today is the time that God is inviting you to begin to follow him. We're going to close with a song that will give us the opportunity of singing that truth Father, we thank you for just the opportunity of worshiping you today. We thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you that through the testimony of the apostles and the prophets that we have been given a a revelation and understanding of who Jesus really is. Father, and that carries with with it blessing, not just for a little while, but forever. And Father, I pray that we would be a, a people who continues to follow you and declare that Jesus is the Son of the living God. 